accelerate the laundering of my pinstripes. I mean, I mustn't let my standards slip. It must have been three o'clock in the morning, the morning of her 49th birthday at that, and he had her lugging boxes of books and documents from the garage and into his study. She was exhausted, she was feeling bereft in general, and all she wanted was some quiet time alone to think about Humphrey and Woolworth. She would have preferred to talk things through with that battered old teddy bear, but that was not going to be possible. There was a doll called Jemima at the back of her alleged husband's side of the wardrobe. She might grab that to sleep with instead. While she had absolutely no desire to sleep with this man, she was hungry for affection from somewhere. Perhaps she would find some sort of comfort from whatever dreams were scheduled for her private screening that morning. They'd have to be short films, with her having to be up in only a couple of hours to watch the man who was purporting to be her husband telling the world what the hell was going on. Him and his pinstripes could go and sod right off, though. You'd only be seen from the chest up. And as for your radio rubbish, whenever that's supposed to go out, you probably aren't going to be seen at all. The radio show he'd been broadcasting every weekday morning for these past four years had been casually referred to as rubbish by Mr Lovewell QC himself. Yet when she used the phrase, within precisely the same context, it was not radio rubbish. The premise was dire, I will accept that. But I'll have you know, I personally wrung every last bit of quality out of it. So much so that you couldn't wait to ditch the whole bloody thing. That sounded quite argumentative, really. She hadn't meant it to, but she was so tired and confused, and these damn boxes were so heavy. He wouldn't listen to her either, when she suggested going through the contents of the things outside, and then only bringing in the items he actually needed. Nope, she had to drag everything in for him to do that, before heaving it all back out again. He was getting on a bit, no arguments there, but a gentleman would at least have offered to take on some of the burden. Hadn't they already established, though? The man with her there in Brentwood was no gentleman. As a matter of fact, I thought I had. But irrespective of that, if I am to be used as a figurehead for the entire population of this country, the least I can do is put on my trousers. Fine. They didn't have to be especially laundered for that purpose, though, did they? That was the last box, now safely returned to the garage, thank goodness. It looked like the heaviest of the lot, but it was actually the one which had given her the least trouble. She supposed that was more a function of her thinking hard about other things and sorting out those minor details on some form of autopilot, rather than allowing herself to open the door to a guardian angel who had been sent there to help her and who had decided to shoulder most of the weight of her immediate concerns as a sign to her that he was there. Or that she was, of course. Although a reputation like Louise's did tend to make her a fairly unsympathetic figure to most other women. Besides, it was much more romantic to imagine an especially handsome, hugely heroic, utterly devoted and thoroughly masculine entity at her side to protect her. The more she thought about that, the more excited she became. Only, the more she thought about that, the more this devastatingly attractive angel of hers had come to resemble her poor, darling Humphrey. Given the implication that this would have to have involved a fatal accident for the dear sweet bloke, she abandoned the entire idea. However, the thought of having him there with her, even for that short amount of time, had given her the most intense feeling of comfort. She was just heading back inside for the final time when she remembered that she'd left her bag in the car. 
This contained, amongst a host of other things, Michael Lovewell's mobile phone. She figured she really ought to give it back to the man who was purporting to be him. It was on the cusp of dying completely, with the charger somewhere or other in one of their Scarborough suitcases. There was something nagging at her about that phone, though. Something she couldn't quite put her finger on, but which she just knew would only get more difficult to ignore if she did return that phone to the man who paid the bill for it. Walworth had frequently felt it necessary over these past four years to cut off one or both of their phones whenever one or both of them had threatened to cause any trouble. Usually when communications were restored, at least in her case, she would always find a little voicemail message waiting for her from him to apologise for any inconvenience they'd experienced, together with a word or two about how she needed to remain positive. Staying positive was the key. It had to be. She just had to focus on staying positive. With that frame of mind, she speculated that the communications channels would have to be opened up at some point before her alleged husband was scheduled to broadcast to the nation, or how else would he be able to tie whatever was involved up with a producer or a director? That would be when any voicemail messages would make themselves known to her. That settled that then. She would keep that phone with her until such time as she'd heard whatever final thoughts Woolworth had left her or him with. Considering every other problem he would have had to have surmounted to have reached a stage where he was leaving her messages, the fact he'd mentioned that his own phone had run out of power backstage at that theatre would be a relatively simple thing to cope with. Her alleged husband didn't need to know any of this. He had far too much on his plate, what with his furniture rearranging and the concerns about his books and his nose and his trousers. So much so that she decided to close the front door very gently indeed and steal past the one to his study before taking herself upstairs to bed without troubling him with her mobile phone worries. Ditto, there was no point at all in mentioning her birthday to him. On the contrary, it was cancelled until further notice. There, that settled that. Chapter 21 Humphrey's room had never had a lock on the door, even though his father had offered to fit one to the inside or rather, to pay someone else to do it, what with him too busy, as one of the finest barristers of his generation, to perform menial tasks like that, in order that he and Louise would not be disturbed while they were in there, doing their homework. She would have loved nothing more than to cuddle up with him in that room, away from the outside world. She'd felt safe in there her whole life, up until now. Because as she stood in the early morning pitch darkness, her fingers tightly gripping the inside handle, she could see there was nothing to hand which might have been able to reinforce the door. She was back in her old room, in her old home. There had been a lock on that door then, but the key was not one Louise was allowed to have access to. She would never know if it was being given to someone on any night or any afternoon or any evening and she had no say at all as to whether they could come into her room, perform the very briefest of introductions, and then lock the door behind them, from the inside. The feeling of powerlessness and anxiety were as real now as they had been then. But this man was her husband. How could he have panicked her to the extent that she was genuinely fearful he might yet force his way into that room, and casually force himself upon her? Not as a game, not as a joke, but as someone who thought he could do whatever he wanted, 
and with no one around anywhere at all who was prepared to stop him. The Vaseline and energy drinks he bought for himself up in Scarborough, while she was busy taking care of her family's future pastor and loo needs, told their own story there. She had another problem now in that she couldn't even think about going to sleep. For a kick-off, as tired as she was, she had no faith in her ability to be able to sleep standing up, and that was the only option she had available to her if she didn't want to let go of that door handle. It occurred to her that there might be something easily to hand, perhaps in that bag of hers, a slim book or something, which might have been the right shape and size to shove under the bottom of the door so as to wedge it shut. That would be no good at all, though, if her little boy went looking for her in the night and couldn't open it. She never, ever wanted him to experience the feeling of being alone when he really needed someone. She couldn't bear the thought of deliberately engineering a way to do that to him. That made the choice a very simple one. She would have to take her chances with the door and hope that Michael was too exhausted to even come and investigate why she decided to avoid their double bed in favour of darling Humphrey's old single one. She wouldn't be able to sleep anyway. Staying awake until dawn, straining for the sound of your potential keyholder coming closer and closer and closer was awful enough. But waking up from dreams of handsome princes, knights in shining armour and dragons being slayed on your behalf, only to discover you'd woken in a parallel world where life was anything but a fairy tale, was even worse. She took her hand off the handle and waited. When nothing catastrophic happened, she took a step away from the door. Annoyingly, she'd been in such a hurry to be closer to Humphrey that she neglected to collect Jemima. She wanted her teddy bear so very badly. She would never have kept it, though. She couldn't have done. It would have served to remind her just how horrific certain parts of her past had really been. Better to have slung it, together with its daft notions of ruining Michael Lovewell's career with her nonsense, after she turned 16, rather than to have dragged it along with her throughout her life. That way, she could always imagine it was out there somewhere, fulfilling its own dream to be the confidant of a little girl who only needed to speak to it in order to find out how many imaginary sugar lumps it wanted in its imaginary tea. Whether it wanted a hug to make it feel better because there was a thunderstorm it mustn't be scared of somewhere in the distance. Or whether it believed in fairy godmothers and wishes being granted and then coming true. Just the normal things a little girl might discuss with her teddy bear. Much better than being stuck in a box, or even crueler, up on a shelf, with all of that knowledge, all of those secrets, and perhaps the one bright idea that may actually have been the one, only to be ignored by your little girl entirely. That bedroom had been cleansed of everything of Humphrey's over the years, although the bed was still his. Or the frame of it. Without his bedclothes, his pillows, his duvet, his mattress, or even his original headboard, it was perhaps not even a legitimate thing to say that it was still Humphrey's bed, but it was all she had of him there with her at the moment. Had she been courageous enough, she could have taken herself downstairs to his father's study. She had an overwhelming desire to go and place herself in the one location she knew her beloved best friend had frequently stood, right next to, and then usually over, windowsill. But she didn't dare do that. She had one option available to her, one only, and that was to get into bed, curl herself up in a ball and screw her eyes together tightly. If he thought she was asleep, 
Perhaps he might just take pity on her and decide to leave her there undisturbed, unmolested. Or if he was noisy enough and gave her some warning when he came, and God, what a time to be planting a mental image like that into her head. She might even be able to bury that head under her pillow and make as though no one could see her. A last resort option during her younger days, although one which had seldom been successful. She placed Mr Lovewell's mobile phone on the shelf above the bed, pulled back the covers and then slid under them, thinking of Humphrey and his protective and strong arms as she did so. He had seldom given any indication that he ever could or ever would be her hero. Quite the reverse, if the pain she had suffered over the years, knowing he was not in love with her, was anything at all to go by. She loved him so very much. She wasn't even sure he knew just how much, not that he even cared particularly. Her arm reached across to the area beside her, as it would most definitely have done had Humphrey been in that single bed with her. The practicalities of that were not worth considering. He was neither especially fat nor especially thin when she thought of him. He was just him. Therefore, he would have been able to share that bed with her with no problems at all. Her fingers felt something small and soft. That did not tie in with the rest of her fantasy about being in bed beside Humphrey, but actually, it would probably have made it even more exciting to just lie there and talk to him and cuddle him, rather than going the historical route and trying to force him into making love to her. It was a teddy bear. She was positive it was a teddy bear. It was dark in that room and her 49-year-old eyes were not as reliable as they used to be, even in the brightest of lights. But for the briefest of moments, she could have sworn that was her teddy bear, until logic took over and remonstrated with her for being so silly. Her bear had been chucked away by her own fair hand in 1986, and even if it hadn't, it had never worn any sort of costume, which her fingers reported back to her, this one was. Her heart beat more quickly than she could ever remember, and as she concentrated on that, the logical arguments were shoved aside by ones emanating from her very soul. They were biased, of course they were, fitting themselves to the evidence rather than a much more scientific and likely totally opposite view. But she felt entirely justified in that because, you see, she was so very desperate to believe that that little bear might have been the one she'd lost so many years ago now. She pressed it to her face and breathed in deeply, but that took her further back than she'd intended, back to any of the many times she had buried her face in her little bear for whatever comfort he could offer her during nights at home where nobody else was interested. There was no particular smell which had tripped that switch, merely the feeling of screwing up her eyes, filtering out the scent of whichever man it was who had disturbed their peace and quiet, and praying for rescue from somewhere. And rescue had eventually come, in the form of William Woolworth, the man who had given her the strength and help she'd needed to start to build an independent life for herself, free from people who would deliberately hurt her. The man who'd made promises to her for a better world one day, where people like her would not have to be afraid and where people like her could trust people like him without the strong expectation of being let down by them. The man who, as it turned out, had been in that very house last Friday, and who had only been caught because she'd gone back to the house with Barney and Mr Sudbury, instead of heading straight to Scarborough with them. If it was her teddy bear, he could have planted it then. But why leave it on Humphrey's single bed, 
rather than the one she used to share with her eminent husband. In the room, it transpired that Walworth himself, or someone very close to him, had ensured was under covert surveillance. The answer to that question seemed obvious. He had anticipated Michael Lovewell QC's complete character transplant and deduced from it that she would have too much self-esteem to continue to share his bed when she wasn't even sure she knew who he was. What a tremendous compliment to her, if that was really so. She knew for certain he had anticipated this lockdown, which would have put her back in Humphrey's bed on the morning of her birthday, and therefore in the mood to graciously accept such a thoughtful gift. The evidence definitely did fit her hypothesis, apart from the fact that her bear had never had a costume, and apart from the additional fact that her bear would have had to have been rescued from the doom to which she'd sent it by William Woolworth himself. It was possible, but for someone like him to have kept something like that for all these years would have had to have meant Louise was very important to him. As important to him, in fact, as he'd always claimed she was. That was an even bigger compliment to her, because it reinforced everything he'd originally told her. She'd always been a sucker for believing the lies of men who wanted to use her, but her instincts had proved right in being able to trust him. Eventually. Only, he'd fallen foul of her alleged husband by being someone who had been true to his word, someone who was entirely honourable with the result that there was still a chance that he was now resting upon a mortuary slab somewhere and, ironically, would be proved not to have been honourable at all in the matter of keeping his word to her. Poor Mr Woolworth. Blast that Charlotte and who was purporting to be her husband, and Humphrey, if he really had been stupid enough to be tricked into taking the blame for Woolworth's murder. She held that little bed tightly to her chest and received the confirmation she needed that it was hers when it told her off for being stupid enough to think Humphrey could have been involved in anything as nefarious as that. She silently argued back that she'd never claimed he was capable of committing the murder himself, and after all due consideration, the bear apologised to her and encouraged her to keep believing in her spectacularly daft best friend and the fallen establishment kingpin who was last seen in his company. But if this really and truly was her bear, and if Mr. Morworth had left it there for her to find on her birthday, then what costume would he have organised for it to wear? And it would have been him too, with all of his responsibilities, with all of his influence, with the resources of the entire civil service at his disposal. She knew absolutely that he would have made such a purchase himself. She couldn't quite imagine him queuing up at the Build-A-Bear workshop on his lunch break after perusing the outfits available and selecting the best one but she could definitely see him scouring the internet for the perfect one and then quietly sending for it with minimum fuss. She had two options then. To wait just a little while for the sun to start coming up, whereupon Humphrey's old room would be gifted sufficient light for her to be able to get a look at precisely what the outfit consisted of. Or she could get out of bed, risk the creaking of a few floorboards giving away her position, and switch the light on in the process providing her alleged husband with the information that she was probably still awake by letting that light give her away from under the door. This was like one of those multiple choice exam questions where one possible answer is so absurd that it could be instantly dismissed as a viable option almost immediately by anyone with even a small allocation of common sense. There would have to be a third choice though, 
one that really made you think hard as to which of those two remaining options was the answer the examiners were looking for. She ran her fingers over the costume and tried to imagine what she would see when the scene was illuminated in order to determine whether the risk of attracting Lovewell QC's attention was going to be worth it. There was a hat of some description, something long and fairly rigid being held in the right paw, with something else flat and also rigid in the left. And there was the costume, which took care of the top half of the bear nicely, but which appeared to have failed to take his lower half requirements into account at all. None of that screamed out to her as being sufficient reason to risk having her alleged husband know she was still wide awake, which brought the third of her multiple choice options to the fore, the screen of her alleged husband's mobile phone. It was critically low on power, and she still needed to preserve as much of that as possible until either she could obtain such voicemail messages as were on it, or she could find the charger for the thing later that morning. But if she were to use the light from that, very quickly, to satisfy her curiosity with regards to that bear, what possible harm could it do? She reached her hand out to the shelf above that bed, grabbed hold of the phone, and brought it closer to that little bear. She stopped briefly to remind herself of the enormity of what potentially was about to occur. If it was her bear, she was about to come face to face with a very good friend, indeed her only friend at one point, a friend she had painfully tried to cut out of her life, but one that had never truly been very far away. Nothing. Perhaps the battery had died on her already, just when she needed to rely on it. That was typical then in that case. Oh no, wait a minute. It usually helps to open your eyes if you really want to take a good look at things, Louise. Good God Almighty. Her bear was still her bear, and looking into his glassy and lifeless eyes still brought inestimable comfort to her. Just the sight of him gave her hope that she and her little boy would be able to successfully survive this lockdown, however long it was destined to go on for, even if her alleged husband continued to set off every single one of her alarms. But her bear, for all of his heroic qualities, had never been afforded a costume really deserving of the vital role he played in her life. Until now. A knight in fabric armour, with a velvet-wrapped shield and a shiny and sparkling lance. Why did that entire description remind her so very much of Humphrey? Chapter 22 Michael finished screwing in the last of the computer's cables and then checked his watch. He had unfinished business with his wife and sufficient time to conclude same provided she wasn't expecting him to pay too much attention to her needs. All he had to do was check that the desktop computers were working again, that was all. Bob would be his uncle, Fanny would be his aunt, and that woman would consider herself damn lucky to be the one he had chosen to be his wife, provided she watched her step. The computer was now sitting happily on the desk, which had been dragged across to the other side of that study, nearer to the window. Lighting-wise, it was the most logical place to have positioned everything, certainly as far as that monstrosity of a nose was concerned. Whichever one out of Bob and Fanny it was who could claim the Lovewell nose as their own had Michael's sincerest sympathies. It was for the high jump as soon as a specialist could be found. End of story. Unless this latest round of media commitments allowed no window of opportunity for such a thing, but he would just have to cross that bridge when he came to it. 
That was rather a good little joke, that one. Noses, bridges. What a very great pity there was nobody there in that study with him to appreciate it. Having said that, he was getting uncomfortable with the idea of a window with no blinds or curtains through which any passing prowler could cop a covert eyeful. Even as he contemplated such a threat to his privacy, he somehow convinced himself that such a prowler might even have been looking in at him, then and there. All he could see for his troubles as he approached the window sill was his own reflection in the window itself, which was hardly likely to assist him in placating his trepidatious mood. He could see nothing outside, although he did register and record somewhere internally that there was one hell of a draught right in front of that window, just as you approached the window sill, and that little box which sat upon it. It wasn't even a draught, really, more an anomalous cold spot. He shook the entire thing out of his head and returned to worrying about his computer setup. A quick check was required to ensure that all was in order, and then he was going in search of that nubile younger wife of his. He was feeling quite tired now, all of a sudden, but that was fine. She would not be averse to doing all the work while he just lay there. She would be honoured to do such a thing for him. Damn and blast it all! A press of the power switch produced absolutely nothing. An initial attempt at troubleshooting the problem identified a plug which was switched off at the mains and another one which had not been connected properly at the back of the monitor. But that simply could not have been possible. He'd checked the wires a million times and he knew very well that he'd switched everything on at the wall. He tried the power switch again. Still nothing. He was starting to get annoyed now. If the stupid thing wouldn't return to work after this period of enforced idleness, then he was going to have to stay in that sodding study for whatever remained of the night, if necessary, and forego the marital pleasures he had already pencilled into his busy schedule. And he still felt as though he was being watched. He went back over to check the plug to the computer. As expected, it was on at the mains, and the wire, which had proved so problematical before, was now firmly screwed in. Lovewell QC was tired and his mind had been playing tricks on him, that was all. And yet, there was still nothing. He took himself back over to the window, squinting through the glass as best he could without paying too much attention to the reflection that greeted him from within it. He put his hands on the windowsill, noticing again what a cold spot there was in that general area, and peered through the window even more closely, bending over the sill as he did so. His forehead was against the pane as he once again concluded there was nobody out there leering in at him. Not beneath the window ledge, anyway. He raised his eyes to confirm there was nobody staring back at him from further down the garden, but was momentarily stopped in his tracks by having to negotiate his reflection in that glass en route. Only it wasn't his reflection. Oh, the massive nose was the same, all right. But the day Michael Lovewell QC modelled a boob tube in a pair of purple velvet jodhpurs was the day the world stopped turning. Humphrey? Michael had been focusing his eyes in a strange way and they played tricks on him while they were sorting themselves out. That was the logical explanation for imagining that ridiculous boy was there in that study with him, wearing an outfit that he never had done in reality. He pressed the button on the monitor again and thankfully got an immediate response. All he had to do now was leave it on in order for it to receive whatever emails full of information they were going to send him, and that would be that. During his previous reign as a ubiquitous media personality, he'd given many online opinions and views via this very setup, 
so the preparation time in the morning would not need to be much. That meant he could finally get on with the business of making love to that woman. The feeling that he wasn't alone in that room grew stronger as he turned around with the intention of leaving it. When he turned around again so as to confirm the feeling, of course there was no one else to be seen. What could be seen, however, was a written proclamation on behalf of his desktop computer that it had updates of all shapes and sizes to offer him and it was not going to be taking update later as an acceptable answer. He decided to leave it on to do its thing, to have it restart itself without him and to see what, if any, difference there was in the morning. The internals might be vastly different, way beyond what a layman like him could be expected to determine, but if the entire package looked the same, how would anyone ever know? Ah, oh, but sod it! If he didn't sit and supervise this complete takeover of his own resources by an annoying little system with delusions of grandeur, it might start playing silly buggers first thing in the morning and could even jeopardise his breakfast show. Sod it with bells on! He needed just the briefest amount of sleep too. Not enough to start up any conversations with the Sandman. He was very reluctant indeed to leave himself vulnerable to any attack on that front but simply to begin this new day with a new frame of mind. That settled it. He would have to sit down in his chair, at his desk, beside that computer, and snatch whatever winks he could while waiting for the updates to update, the restart to restart, and his instructions for that morning, that day, and for however long he was supposed to be stuck indoors for, to enter his life from somewhere. He would tell Louise he had been thinking of her by allowing her to catch up on her beauty sleep, a positive spin of the facts, given the three lemons which could be cashed in later that day. It would save any worries she may have had that she wasn't good enough for him anymore. Not now he was one of the finest prosecution barristers of any generation. He'd always been able to charm her, and he had complete confidence in that situation continuing unabated. He must make sure she fully reciprocated, though. That was non-negotiable. But why wouldn't she have done? He was attractive in a devastating way. He was handsome in a distinguished way. He was successful in a refreshing and exciting way. And he had, single-handedly, more or less, proved to Louise just how much he thought of her by proving himself the victor in a personal contest against both other far inferior rivals for her affections. He glanced over towards the window, hoping to catch a glimpse of his reflection which had not decided to show that nose of his, using the same scale as that employed for the rest of his face. A reduction of maybe 50% or so might be a good start. Mind you, it just meant to show how devastatingly gorgeous he was as a person overall, that Louise still worshipped everything about him, even with a nose like that. He could carry it off, obviously. It did suit the face of Brentwood's new Elliot Ness, there was no doubt about it. It also suited that ridiculous boy. Michael was able to make that assessment with a great degree of certainty, based on the clear image of the idiot himself. Not a reflection in the window this time, but a physical entity, as solid in appearance as his father himself was, leaning up against the windowsill and smiling at him. Before his father could make a reasonable case for tiredness affecting his brain or for there to have been a trigger of the light, anything at all that pointed away from his study being turned into a consulting room for Doris Stokes' modern equivalent, his eyes closed involuntarily. They removed him from the visual experience for only a few seconds, but it was enough time for that ridiculous boy to vanish again, as quickly as he had appeared. 
Then that wretched computer broke into his thoughts, shutting itself down with its raft of updates, rather than restarting and doing something about them, as he was sure he had authorised. His hand reached out for the button and he realised it was actually shaking. He reached for his belt in order to fashion a religious idol out of it, which might do some good when brandished at the boy alongside a few threatening words, the way Max von Sydow might have seen off and then kept away an unwelcome entity of his own. No belt. Bugger. The cumulative effects of a severe lack of sleep over the course of probably 40-odd days, since before Michael Lovewell QC told William Warworth where he could shove his five-times-a-week talk show to chicanery, had taken such a severe toll on the greatest barrister who'd ever existed, that he'd begun to hallucinate, that was all. The ridiculous clothes the even more ridiculous boy had been wearing were all the proof necessary for that hypothesis. Purple velvet jodhpurs and a boob tube. Contemporary clothes for a period of time, circa 1985 as a matter of fact, but hardly an outfit even the most tired of brains would have conjured up for a phantom to have been wearing when it troubled him. Although if it had been a legitimate apparition of Humphrey, he would have wanted to create the maximum visual impact, and those purple jodhpurs were nailed on certainties to achieve that. As a matter of fact, they'd look for all the world as they'd been painted on, which was another anomaly to take into account. If that was a genuine apparition of the 2019 Humphrey, no jodhpurs in the world could have contained him. He was a figment of his unfortunate father's imagination, all right. Humphrey wasn't even dead, was he? So he couldn't very well have been making his living in the afterlife, if such a juxtaposition of words was even feasible. Not unless he had fallen foul of the same murderer as Walworth, and the vague talk of him being taken into custody by a chief superintendent of the Metropolitan Police had simply been a mistake. Not even a mistake, a lie, designed to keep the spectre of that ridiculous boy hanging over his life for however long his sentence was supposed to be. Life without parole, presumably. It was no great leap of the imagination at all to find Humphrey being unceremoniously done in, either by the murderer for whom he'd been pencilled in to take the actual blame, or by someone else who had decided his removal from the scene would further a particular agenda. And how was someone in Brentwood, cut off from the outside world entirely, supposed to know which story was the accurate one? From a personal perspective, Humphrey's death was the more favourable of the two basic options, in that it eliminated any slim possibility that the Lovewell QC faculties had been repossessed. It was too bad for Humphrey, of course, but never mind. Only, by the looks of things, that ridiculous boy may well have found the ultimate way to get right up his father's preposterously large nose. How utterly typical of Humphrey to have muscled his way back into that house thus preventing this threatened lockdown from being a fulfilling and even enjoyable experience for Lovewell QC. Every television or internet broadcast he made, he would now be on edge, in case that ridiculous boy and his jodhpurs manifested themselves behind him and completely stole his limelight. Ditto if he was asked to inform the people, via any medium at all, of anything Humphrey did not personally like the sound of. The potential for bangs and knocks interrupting the flow of things would be even greater for his radio stuff, and then there were the day-to-day -day bits of household administration to consider. The thought of being observed by such an embarrassing energy force while locked securely inside the smallest room and engaged in his most private business was one of the most chilling things to have ever occurred to him. God, if his own bathroom wasn't sacred, where the hell would it be? 
Bitterly, he realised this would have to spell the postponement of his love-making activities with Louise. Fancy getting to the finishing line, only to roll over and find Humphrey floating there, giving the scores from the underworld judges. They would be tens all round, naturally, with perhaps the odd 9.9 thrown in there when Louise was not quite at her best, but that was quite beside the point. She would be heartbroken and might even threaten to divorce him, but he could always say something complimentary about her eyes and hope to placate her. He'd have to do that without mentioning Humphrey's mysterious death, too. It would only upset her. And he didn't much fancy enduring whatever this lockdown might entail alongside a weeping and wailing woman. If he was dead, of course that would have been absolutely tragic. Lovewell QC could not immediately come up with a reason as to why it should have been, but most mortals probably would have done, so he was prepared to take that initially on trust. But God Almighty, if he was dead... What a typically selfish trick for that ridiculous boy to have played. Chapter 23 As was usual in the world of dreams, Anthea had no recollection at all of having dropped off to sleep, much less of the path she had taken through the land of Nod, which had put her back on the outside deck of that cruise ship. All of a sudden she was just there, as was also usual in the world of dreams, she brought with her a huge amount of background information. This was the same evening that Humphrey had staged that entertainment extravaganza in her honour, and it was the same evening she had stolen the gorgeous Barney Adams away from her younger sister's fangirl clutches. Deliciously, that made it the same evening Sandra had looked as rough as the very roughest of assholes, which immediately put Anthea in something of a quandary. While she was not advocating having Humphrey pounding away at her from behind while simultaneously bringing her to the peak of sexual ecstasy, not this time, she was still hoping to experience some of the thrill and excitement of being on her own up there with the man who had truly loved her. Strictly speaking, this meant that her sister Sandra's presence up there with them would not have been authentic in the slightest. But there was a lot to be said for what another look at that cow, at her very worst, would do for Anthea's self-esteem. She resolved to keep that option open, especially as she had decided not to include the blind date chronicler amongst the contingent of people enjoying the evening air in the vicinity of that pile of deck chairs on this occasion. It was to be just herself and her ex-husband, with perhaps her annoying younger sister if Anthea felt she needed the services of an ego boost. It may have been a dream she had landed herself in the middle of, but certain aspects of it were as real to her now as they had been then. She could feel the movement of the ship, the wind on her face, that same wind in one or two other places. She knew without having to look down and check that she was wearing the old-fashioned dress she'd managed to squeeze her way into with the assistance and attentions of an army of experts. She approached the railing to the left of that enormous pile of deck chairs from the other side of the vessel, as she had done in reality, and just like in reality, she could see Humphrey leaning out over the railings to the right of them. She assumed it to be Humphrey anyway. Whoever it was was dressed in a tuxedo, which actually probably made it less likely to be her ex-husband than if he'd been in the sort of dress she herself was modelling. She leaned out over the railing on the left-hand side and composed herself. At least she wouldn't have to shout across to him this time. The noise of the sea was barely even noticeable. Her plan for their original meeting was closure, only it had been a selfish form of closure she'd had in mind, allowing her to move on from her marriage and into a new relationship with Barney, 
while emphasising to Humphrey that she wouldn't like him to move on too quickly. It might just have worked if she'd given him her wedding ring back and then beat a dignified retreat instead of dropping to her knees and unzipping his trousers. This time it would be different. Hello, Humphrey. The tension was extraordinary. Hello, gorgeous. Just a minute. Something wasn't right then. That was Barney's voice. She leaned further out to get confirmation of that. Even if she did so, it occurred to her that she was missing out on the opportunity of seeing her future husband rocking that tuxedo she'd already observed. What was more, he was rocking it while bending over that railing. Christ! And the Barney Adams arse appreciators would have to be knocking about somewhere as well, including her bitch of a sister, who would be sidling up to Barney with reckless abandon unless Anthea made her way round those deck chairs first. How long was an average deck chair, all folded up like that and piled up with all the other deck chairs? Four feet? Even at six feet, which couldn't possibly have been accurate, it would take a reasonably fit woman no time at all to navigate herself around to the other side of them, especially not on solid cruise liner decking. How interesting, how curious, but how naffing annoying indeed then, to have that solid cruise liner decking turning into some sort of localised quicksand leaving her running on the spot in exaggerated fashion without getting anywhere at all. And all the time she knew, she just knew, that her sister had secured the services of a pair of roller skates and was racing across the boards and towards Anthea's future husband at the speed of light, with Ros and Eleanor ahead of her somewhere, equipped with a stiff broom each, sweeping any debris out of her path before she went arse over tit. Even there the bitch would probably slide her way straight to the feet of the wonderful Barney, unless all that body hair proved to be too much to handle in the friction department, leaving her to run out of momentum several feet away. Better yet, the ship might hit a particularly big wave, sending her back across the deck from whence she'd started. Having got nowhere in her attempt to negotiate these blasted deck chairs, and fearing for Barney's honour if that hairy harlot caught up with him, Anthea returned to the railing to regroup. She could still see Barney leaning out over his own railing, she assumed it to be Barney anyway. Whoever it was was dressed in a tuxedo, which actually probably made it less likely to be her future husband than if he'd been in the Wurzel Gummidge costume he'd been modelling earlier on. She leaned out over the railing on the left-hand side and composed herself. At least she wouldn't have to shout across to him this time. The noise of the sea was barely even noticeable. Oi, you! Just a minute. Something wasn't right there either. That was Sandra's voice. She leaned further out to get confirmation of that. Even as she did so, it occurred to her that her sister's dulcet Essex tones had come not from the other side of those deck chairs, but from directly behind her. Was it too much to hope that when Anthea turned round, she would find that her sister had been claimed by the localised quicksand? Only up to the armpits, that was all, nothing fatal. The Mumble family physics would have forbidden her to descend any further anyway with the sheer abundance of the mumble armpit hair, tending to give its unfortunate female possessors a natural buoyancy. Anything that would keep her from slithering her way over to see Barney, though, would get the greenest of green lights from Anthea. How dare you bring me here? Disappointingly, the bitch was not discovered to be submerged, chest deep in slurry, but she was still as overgrown to look at as she had been on their original voyage. There was no sign of either Ros or Eleanor, so there was a chance the pair of them were on the other side keeping an eye on Barney. 
but their interest in him, as far as she knew, had only ever been from afar. Therefore they could be trusted to keep their mitts off him, unlike Madame over here. Who she did have with her to keep her in check, however, was her long-suffering husband, Michael. He must have been winched onto the scene via helicopter in response to Anthea's own emergency flare. What luck! He'd be able to keep a close eye on the mare to make sure she kept those marriage vows of hers at the very forefront of her mind. Except that he'd just vanished from the scene, from right in front of Anthea's very eyes. There I was, minding my own business in Sheffield, just about to let Simon Le Bon serenade me with a little something in our old bedroom. That was a turn up for the books, considering that dream was one of Anthea's own. The next thing you dragged me back onto this bloody boat, without even the kindness to let me know where I was going so I might grab hold of a couple of dozen disposable razors. Wow, disposable razors in the land of Nod must be a lot more efficient than the ones they sold in Sheffield, because a couple of dozen normal ones would barely have made an impression on the overgrown specimen Anthea was looking at. The overgrown specimen who had looked, for that one night only, immeasurably worse than Anthea had ever done. Think of it like a game of Cluedo, Sandra. You're my chief suspect, therefore fair game to be dragged out of wherever you were to face the accusations of anyone with a legitimate reason. From her own lips, while a guest of Anthea's at Splink, the bitch had intimated that the three cards in the envelope would suggest that her sister had been up to no good whatsoever in Humphrey's cabin, with the weapon, so she claimed, being Mr Lovewell's imagination and overall dexterity. At least you believe me now. Anthea shook her head, just before her sister's husband popped back into view, from whichever other part of the land of Noddy had taken a small detour to. Believe you in what way? Sandra opened her mouth to reiterate this fantastical evening she'd spent being seduced and then ravished by Anthea's former husband. Then she remembered that her own husband was stood there listening in as well now. Sandra gave it large with a few mouthed threats and insults, but they were water off a duck's back, really. One of them was physically impossible, surely even in the land of Nod, and the other would have crumbled away to nothingness had Anthea had some kind of reflective surface to hand with which to remind her younger sister just how truly awful she looked at that moment. Sandra, darling. Her cow of a sister did her best with what nature had given her, smoothing down her monobrow and making sure her moustache was symmetrical, before turning towards her own husband meekly. I look rough, I'm sorry. He laughed at her. At no point did he attempt to argue with her, though. I was just having a chat with Humphrey. Anthea barely had time to process that before her sister rushed to get a word in. Whatever he said to you, it's not true. She really was a cowardly customer. Poor Humphrey. If he had tormented this piece of work for an entire night, and from a sadistic perspective, Anthea was quite hopeful that he had, then he deserved better than for his efforts to have been dismissed in their entirety like this. There was a time when Anthea would have given everything she owned for a night like that with Humphrey. Encouraging this bag to betray her own husband was not something she could ever condone, though. If he had done that, Humphrey, he was a bit of a lowlife. Although this little get-together on the outside deck of that ship must have been taking place before any of that was supposed to have actually occurred. If indeed it ever had. I think it is. Sandra looked very concerned indeed. Her nervous trait appeared to be rubbing her goatee, presumably in some desperate search for a change in her luck. Who knew? 
What did he tell you, Michael? Yes, no doubt chiming in with that was a bit cruel of Anthea, really. But by gum, seeing her sister's face looking so terrified was absolutely unequivocally worth it. Sandra's husband, Michael, zoomed to her side at a speed which would have done Speedy Gonzales proud, even screeching to a hawk like him with the proper Looney Tunes sound effects. He told me I'm a selfish bastard. Straight out, just like that. Michael was smiling, so had obviously taken that harsh character assessment on board with reasonable good grace. He gave me some tips, instructions if you like, to hopefully be a little bit less selfish. In bed, if you know what I mean. Even for a dream world where possibilities were more or less limitless, the idea of anyone at all taking heed of advice Humphrey gave them about keeping a woman happy in bed was simply too fantastic to even consider. All that business with Louise overhearing all sorts of noises would have been a misunderstanding on her part, or just plain wishful thinking. Just making it into bed in the first place would be an improvement on what usually happens, Mike. He took hold of both of her hands. There was more than a touch of Lon Chaney Jr.'s wolfman about them as well. I thought you liked me to be spontaneous. I haven't been home all that much. I thought that was what you liked. Anthea became aware of the vaguest feeling of jealousy. Humphrey's idea of spontaneous lovemaking was to get the physical act over and done with so quickly that she'd seldom been aware that it had even started. Well, yes, but I, I would like to feel appreciated. I mean, ordinarily, you'd take me up against those railings over there by now. And that's not lovemaking, is it? That's bestial. I want to be made love to by someone who actually means it. And maybe by someone with some sheep-shearing experience, so he could make his way through the thicket of defences the Mumble family tree had lumbered every single female branch of it with. Christ, it was a real wonder the clan hadn't died out bleeding centuries ago. According to Darwin's theories, they must have been better adapted to ride out the Ice Age, that was all. That's what I want too. I love you, Sandra. In that case, there was no hope whatsoever for him then. Being as how this was her dream, at least Anthea had the privilege of fast-forwarding their passionate embrace. She wasn't jealous or anything like that, but this was her dream. Sandra's husband looked at her. Humphrey gave me the keycard to his cabin. He did what? Why would he do that? Very good question, Sandra. He did that, my darling, because, like I said to you, he told me I was a selfish bastard and because he wants to talk to me in the morning before he gets off this boat to make sure the instructions he gave me were adequate. Well, bloody hell. But where's he going to sleep? What the hell business was it of Sandra's? No idea. All I know is he said his brother won't be there and that he would be failing in his duty as a gentleman if he didn't offer that cabin to us. Because this was her dream, Anthea was able to have Sandra's husband's words replayed immediately. He said his brother won't be there. It was now top priority to pack these two off to Humphrey's cabin so she could find Barney, or the man himself, or both. If you will excuse us, Anthea, my wife and I have some urgent business to attend to. Well, that was more like it. Humphrey's lovemaking had always been of the urgent variety. With her sister and brother-in-law having suddenly vanished, Anthea returned for a third time to that railing. She could see Humphrey leaning out over his own railing. She assumed it to be Humphrey anyway. Whoever it was was dressed in a tuxedo, 
which actually probably made it less likely to be her ex-husband than if he'd been in the sort of dress she herself was modelling. She leaned out over the railing on the left-hand side and composed herself yet again. At least she wouldn't have to shout across to him this time. The noise of the sea was barely even noticeable. Hello, Humphrey. The atmosphere was electric. Hello, gorgeous. Finally. Had she known she was finally going to get through to him this time, she would never have used his name like that. She ought to have called him Snoopy, for she realised that now. Her pet name for him, based on the tie he always used to wear to signal when he was happy to entertain thoughts of a romantic nature with her. The relationship between the number of times he'd worn it and the number of times they'd ended up making love as a direct result of it would have been one of those inversely proportional ones. The number of mutually satisfying encounters which had come about could have been rounded up or down depending on the statistician's motives, but the fact remained it would still have been a big fat zero. Can I come over there and see you? There was a pause from his side of simply epic proportions. You're not planning on giving me anything, are you? Only one relatively trivial thing, although it might just have some major ramifications. Whether her dreamlike self had simply passed through the deck chairs as though they were not there, or whether she'd walked around in them in a more conventional manner, she suddenly found herself standing behind the form of her former husband. Perhaps he didn't fully trust her to remain on her feet instead of ending up head high to his crutch, for he didn't turn around. Relieved to be able to break free from the replays of this situation which turned up in her dreams on a regular basis, she instead took herself to the railing between the deck chairs and Humphrey's left arm. There wasn't a lot of room, but she was able to squeeze herself into position fairly comfortably. She didn't look at him, and she felt certain that he hadn't looked over at her either. The darkness of the sea, looking to the northwest as the boat made its way on track from Belfast to the west coast of Scotland, held both their gazes. They moved closer to one another, their arms folded and resting on the rail. Even in that manoeuvre they were pushing against one another. That was the story of their entire marriage, right there. Just so I'm clear in my mind, Humphrey, this is a dream, correct? It's a little more than that. But it's not real, though, is it? No, my darling, it's definitely not real. But it wouldn't be right to call it a dream, either. Well, it is as far as I can make out, is my dream come true. Really? Stood fully clothed, not even looking at one another and talking about nothing in particular? Yep. He could read her mind in the dream as well, evidently. It occurred to her that a hopeless romantic like Humphrey might well have deemed that entire situation to have been the fulfilment of a long-held dream. For starters, if he could read her mind and give voice to her thoughts for himself, it would eliminate the sound of her arguing with him. What can I do for you, my darling? I wanted to talk to you, but obviously that isn't possible where you are, really, at the moment. You can always talk to me. I'm always listening. But that's not the same. I can't be close to you. I can't touch you. I can't look into those beautiful eyes of yours and see myself as you see me. And how do I see you? As a gorgeous, confident and happy woman. She felt him squeeze up even more closely to her. He pressed her up against the deck chairs on her left-hand side, but all things considered, the comfort and warmth she was experiencing to starboard was more than worth that small amount of discomfort. You have just made me the happiest man on earth. Or presumably, 
wherever the land of Nod was located. I can make you even happier. The silence which came back from him hinted at more than a fraction of distrust. It's all right, I'm not going to make any demands on you. She could have sworn he breathed a heavy sigh of relief at that news. Any more direct attacks on her fragile little ego, and she really might have to summon up a return visit from Sandra in her overgrown and shockingly scruffy state. No ego in the world could ever have walked away from a face-to-face -face meeting with that lady and ever felt second best. That had to be a reasonable certainty. What's this I hear about you having a brother? Is it someone I know? She couldn't see his face, but she knew he was smiling. Anthea, that daft little sod is going to make you the happiest woman in the world. That's my brother. She had never heard anyone say anything with more pride in their voice than he had just displayed. And you know what? She suddenly realised that she too was smiling. What's that, Snoopy? It was my mother who told him. Well, well. Can you believe it? That brilliant little bloke is my brother. With that, she felt Humphrey's arm slip round her waist. Probably the first and only time he would have been able to find it, come to think of it. I am so pleased for you, Snoops. He squeezed her tightly. You will look after him for me, won't you, Mumbles? She leaned her head to the right, where it met her ex-husband's, leaning to the left. He felt so solid and real, but he couldn't have been, and that was likely to be the bit she would dwell upon in the morning, if she remembered even that fragment of information. Of course I will. He thought the world of you before, this is just the icing on the cake. Humphrey bought a little cake, with some bespoke piped icing, to offer his congratulations when he found out Anthea and Barney were expecting a baby. But that hadn't happened yet, had it? I would have died for Barney anyway, without even a moment's thought. Don't say that. Don't even think it. He squeezed her again, this time harder than ever. My mum loved me enough to give me my little brother. All these years I thought she hated me, just because I was a lovewell, but she didn't at all. That's why she sent him to me to look after. Although that nearly backfired on her. I was within a hair's breadth of strangling him on a fair few occasions over the years. All this casual talk of death was giving Anthea a very bad feeling indeed. Now seemed as good a time as any, indeed maybe an opportunity like this would never arise again, to tackle a very important topic of conversation. Why didn't you tell me about Louise? She felt him stiffen. That was a novel experience anyway. What about Louise? The Land of Nod was an interesting place, where former spouses were able to cope very magnanimously, with the thought of their own former spouses having genuine feelings towards members of the opposite sex. Come off it, H. His grip on her loosened completely. Well, are we talking about the Louise I went to school with, or the Louise who asked for my help to put a little something together this evening? Why did there have to be two Louises? Actually, I'm a bit more interested in the Louise who was living with you in Brentwood for the whole time you were courting me. Let's start there, shall we? That must have made it at least three Louises now. I won't insult your intelligence, Anthea, by stating the obvious. She said nothing. He said nothing either. You'll have to insult it a little bit, H, because I've got no idea what you're talking about. She felt his fingers squeezing her arm reassuringly. 
the obvious being that she and I were never involved in any way. I'm glad you cleared that up, Snoopy. That's no problem at all, Mumbles. Goldie was thick sometimes. Because that would be the very last thing I would have described as being obvious. She'd probably sounded quite angry there. That hadn't been her intention at all, but honestly. What are you getting at, Anthea? Why was he being so defensive? She was trying to help him, for heaven's sake. You used to take girlfriends back there, though, didn't you? There was a considerable pause. Did she tell you that? She must have done, mustn't she? Because you never thought to. The considerable pause carried itself over to the next page of the Sandman stage directions and continued with renewed determination. They weren't girlfriends. They were clients, I suppose you might call them. Whatever they were, you obviously never thought about her feelings when you kept bringing them back there. Her feelings? Yes, Humphrey, her feelings. What has she told you? It was incredible to think that Humphrey must have wiped all of his experiences with Anthea completely from his memory banks. What else could possibly account for such an innocent yet hideously naive question? We'll get to that. Why didn't you tell me you shared a house with her when we first started going out together? You have got to be joking. That proved he must have wiped all of his experiences with Anthea completely from his memory banks. When had Anthea ever joked? I don't think I said anything particularly amusing. What would you have said to me if I told you I shared a house with my female best friend, eh? What would you have thought? We'll never know, will we? Because you didn't trust me enough to even tell me. You are not going to stand there and say you wouldn't have thought we were former lovers, at the very, very least. No, I should imagine that's exactly what I would have thought. Because, as far as she had been able to ascertain, using Louise as her primary source of information, that poor woman had been hoping they would become lovers for probably the entire time she'd known him. You'd have felt insecure and you'd have told me to piss off and never darken your shop doorway again, correct? More than likely. And then he would have returned home to Louise in whatever emotional state being told to piss off by Anthea would have inspired in him. Some form of jubilation to mark a narrow escape from 12 years of misery, if he had any sense, which he didn't. And his best friend would have been there to console him, to embrace him, to seduce him, quite possibly. Maybe that would have been for the best anyway. He angrily shook his head. You see, you're doing it now, completely underestimating my feelings for you. She reached out for his hand. No, darling, I know how you felt about me. It occurred to her, as she heard herself use the past tense, that it was just possible he would accuse her of underestimating the feelings he had for her now. But if he was going to go down that track, it was probably also for the best anyway. I fell head over heels for you, Anthea. If you'd told me to get lost, I... But wasn't that exactly what you did to Louise? But I wasn't in love with Louise. Crikey. For a sweet, gentle and sensitive soul, he really could be as dense as a bowl of tapioca. No, Humphrey, but she was in love with you. He gave a long and heartfelt sigh. I knew that. I didn't want to hurt her, but I wanted to be with you. She nestled into him once more. I'm not sure I ever did get to tell you just how much I loved you, Snoops. Not bad, for a romantic sort of line. Most of the time you've disguised it pretty well. There was no denying that, unfortunately. You were there to look after me exactly when I needed you. 
Oh, glad to have been of service. Once again she could feel his smile. He had such a genuine, gentle spirit. It was simply horrific to think about what she had put him through. On that subject, who were the women you took back to your room? As I said, they were clients who also needed a service, in a manner of speaking. Now it was Anthea's turn to sigh. You wanted to do that for me, didn't you? More than anything in the world. But having thought about it since, I doubt whether it would have been a very good idea. I mean, the reason I was so successful in my endeavours in those days was because the ladies were married and because they didn't have to be emotionally involved. What about Louise? The same goes for her. She paused. You know what I would have said? If you'd told me all about Louise instead of deciding to keep her a secret? You make it sound as though I was having a bloody affair with her. Which is exactly what you would have said, Anthea. Damn this bloke. I would have told you to go and be with her. I didn't want to be with her. I wanted to be with you. I know that. Believe it or not, I wanted to be with you too. But were we, by any stretch of the imagination, happily married at all? She was thoroughly ashamed to confront the answer for herself that he was bound to have to give her. Well, I was. Of course you weren't. You loved me unconditionally, and I made your life miserable by being completely unable to show you just how much you meant to me. I was the worst wife ever, and don't waste your time arguing with me. He was obviously weighing up his options. Well, I'll only argue if you're the same kind of wife to poor little Barney. Humphrey's brother? Never in a million years. No, I swear to you, I would never treat anyone else the way I treated you. That's a comfort, I suppose. It did sound better in my head. The sensation of time in a dream of this kind was difficult to keep track of. For all she knew, the alarm could go off any moment now, and she still hadn't said what she'd specifically come there to say. All those years I had you. You don't think Louise was secretly hating me? Humphrey firmly shook his head. Louise doesn't have it in her to hate anybody. She's gentle enough to have worked it out so that if I was with the woman I was so desperately in love with, I would be happy. I should imagine it would have broken her poor sweet heart to have had to think about me being sad at all. So I expect the thought would never have occurred to her. Anthea had an awful lot to answer for, whichever way you looked at it. When you met her again on this boat... Well now, she finally got fed up of waiting for me and decided that my father was a much more attractive prospect. Which he was. I've got no arguments there. Because this was still a dream, Anthea knew that when she looked behind her she would see someone from the Barney Adams Arse Appreciators. With Sandra otherwise engaged, that only left either Roz or Eleanor. Not both, though. She wasn't getting the vibe that it was both. I do hope you've been listening to Anthea. Humphrey turned to face the Inquisitor, which turned out to be Eleanor. She looked very well indeed for someone who had been deceased for four years, but with CGI, or whatever they used to touch up people in the land of dreams, she could probably have looked like anyone. She definitely appeared younger than she had done on that original cruise, though. Oh, I always listen to her, believe me. Once upon a time, Anthea would have scoffed at that, but she'd grown up significantly since then. 
looked from one to the other of them, smiling proudly. That was odd. Anthea suddenly had the reason for the oddness, as quick as a flash. This was the founder member of the Barney Adams Arse Appreciators, or whatever name they would give themselves once the dust had settled on however many Humphrey Lovewells there were in existence, and if the newest version was no longer required as Humphrey, whether he was to be rebranded as a Lovewell right from the off. Bar might well have been Blah by the time that was all sorted, and Eleanor may well have seen the former Mr and Mrs Lovewell getting on famously, and assumed that would see them back together, leaving the way to Barney's bunk completely clear for Eleanor and the mysteriously absent Ros. Don't you worry about us, Anthea. Well, I suppose you could, if you'd like to, worry just a teeny tad about Ros. I mean, I don't intend to, but you might think differently. God above us. Barney, no longer simply crashed out in Anthea's cabin and waiting for her to return, or on this side of these deck chairs himself only recently, was probably out there now, telling everyone who would listen to him how proud he was to have Humphrey Lovewell as a brother, which would confuse the socks off anyone who had seen him be declared as Humphrey Lovewell at the conclusion to that entertainment extravaganza earlier on. And now Ros, with the most pronounced penchant for pert posteriors of all his appreciators, was also out there somewhere on her own reconnaissance. The rules of their appreciation society meant that Ros would have died of embarrassment if asked to interact with Barney on any level. So there were no great fears that she might spot him making his way up the great staircase and speedwalk her way to a position, however many stairs behind him it might happen to be, which afforded her the optimum view of his backside. The prize would have been tempting, but the very real threat of him looking behind him and asking her directly what time it was or something would have been a natural check against that sort of potentially deviant behaviour. Funnily enough, Anthea wouldn't have been quite so comfortable in assuming that Eleanor would stick rigidly to the rules of sportswomanly conduct, however. If you think I need to worry about Ros, I'll bring her here. This was still Anthea's dream, after all. Oh no, you can't do that. Where had this sudden air of authority come from in the demeanour of dear old Eleanor? She was away with the fairies when Anthea knew her. Is she not on board, then? Humphrey's words registered with her at the first time of asking, too. No sign of deafness, although possibilities were endless in a dream scenario. No, I'm afraid not. She is severely indisposed at the moment, alongside your father, Humphrey. Oh, and also on the equity members missing list is this vessel's cat weasel, who was last seen bending over and picking up one of Ros's pound coins while she fished around in her cape for a handful of paper clips. Oh, what a shame. He was dead good, him. Anthea took a brief moment to try a little something. Well, wasn't that just typical? All she needed to come up with was the first person she could think of to summon onto her scene, to prove to the whole lot of them that she was the director of the entire production, and that if she wanted Ros right there in front of her, she jolly well would be. Obviously, she couldn't choose Ros as the first person who came into her head. She needed someone else, just in case it wasn't her dream, after all. But put on a spot like that, she couldn't think of anyone else at all. In a panicked brainstorm, she was aware of giving the order to central casting for someone, but she couldn't have sworn who it was. Barney would have been the obvious choice, but nope, it wasn't him. Walworth? Eleanor seemed surprised to see him. So was Anthea, though, to be honest. He looked remarkably well, all things considered. Mind you, so did Eleanor herself, of course. You can't be here. He looked down at himself and then around at the assembled company. I think I must have nodded off or something. I don't know where I am now. 
Stanley's late wife practically hissed at the fallen establishment bigwig. People where you are supposed to be are not supposed to be in places like this. He smiled. Right you are. See you soon, Humphrey. Eleanor tutted very loudly. You can't say things like that. Humphrey will be leaving in a minute. You're not even supposed to be here. That was an awful lot of nodding and winking. Excuse me, Mr. Warworth. I've got a bone to pick with you. Eleanor stepped in between the new arrival and Humphrey's former wife. I'd better handle this. What is it, Anthea? He told me Humphrey would not be going to prison. Eleanor nodded. That's right. What's your point? Was it just Anthea or what? But he told me I could expect Humphrey back at Splink. Did you say that, William? The disgraced establishment Mandarin smiled happily. I might have done. Well, he will be. Eleanor clearly had no control at all over what William Warworth said. Anthea may have attempted to do something to help her, given that this was her dream, but she wanted to see where this might lead. He won't be, though, will he? Humphrey had returned to gazing out over the water and apparently had no interest in listening to them. Anthea, too, felt a great desire to retreat back into the more fact-based version of this dream, rather than something incorporating entities from another dimension. She couldn't afford to waste the time she had left with Humphrey. You're right. Cheerio now. Anthea presumed he had gone. She was too busy holding her ex-husband's hand to pay very much attention to anyone or anything else. I must be making my own move now, Anthea dear. It was probably very bad manners not to turn around and say something cheerful to bid her on her way, but Eleanor knew her moods and her manner of old. In addition to which, so far as Anthea was aware, the woman had invited herself into a private dream between two people anyway. What the purpose of her visit even was had not been determined. Honestly though, for all Anthea knew, her alarm clock was about to herald the beginning of Michael Lovewell QC's breakfast broadcast to the nation. This might be the very last opportunity she would ever have to get what she needed to across to Humphrey. The noise of the sea was getting more noticeable now. The ocean breeze was none too pleasant either. It was whistling around her nether regions most markedly, assisted no end by the fact that she'd neglected to put her underwear back on after that passionate encounter with Barney. I love you, Humphrey. I love you too, Anthea. And if there's anything I can do for you, within the limitations of my current circumstances, and I really don't know how to even begin to describe those, please don't hesitate to find me. He felt so solid, so real. It was almost incomprehensible to think of him as being anything else. A question formed in her mind. It was a highly personal one, which didn't really appear to have very much relevance to her, and which probably was no longer her business, if it ever had been to begin with, but she felt a compulsion to ask it anyway. She ran her hand up and down the back of the solid figure in that tuxedo, the solid figure built the way he had been four years ago, the way he had been ever since he'd made the concerted effort to lose all of the excess weight he'd been carrying when he met her. Those blue eyes had never changed. There was no mistaking who she was dealing with on any single occasion, not with those beautiful blue eyes. Whether he was imploring her silently to knock whatever tirade of abuse she was giving him on the head, or whether he was gazing admiringly at her when he thought she wasn't looking, they were, as cliched and naff as it sounded, the very windows to his soul. And his soul was, quite simply, beautiful.
That was the striking thing about that unplanned pregnancy. The way the mechanics of the act had worked out, and with no way possible for her to look into his eyes while he was in full flow, it really could have been anyone stood there behind her. After all, it wasn't as if there was a recording of the event out there somewhere to verify things, one way or another, was it? Can I just check something with you, Humphrey? Anything you want to, Anthea. Within reason. That was a sign that they'd spiritually moved on from that disaster zone of a marriage, the addendum to the comment. Once upon a time he would have been romantically complacent and left that concern, if it had even occurred to him, entirely unsaid. He must have been working independently within her dream to prevent her from doing anything that might send them straight into 15-minute frenetic fornication territory. There was only one problem with that. If that incident never happened, that little boy of hers would never exist. Unless, unless she could wrap up this meeting with her former husband and rush to find Barney. He had been thoughtful enough to want to protect the pair of them from inviting any tiny future third person into their brand new relationship. He had even had the necessary protection on him when negotiations opened, making it a simple matter for her to throw her weight behind the idea. Not that it needed an endorsement of that magnitude. In the context of where they were at the time, it had been a very sensible idea. But why not be honest with the bloke? His mother had always snidely remarked to him that Anthea had deliberately tricked him into getting her pregnant. Well, what if Barney had been involved with all of those negotiations himself, right from the outset? Most people on their first night together would have been far too sensible to take such a radical course. The difference in her case was, she already knew what they would be missing if they didn't. The man she would be sleeping with, using that term very loosely, could have been anyone. Barney had at least four different aliases, genuine ones, that he could have used at any particular moment. She'd made good use of his Wurzel Gummidge one during their inaugural encounter, obviously, although he had unwittingly been John Pertwee as well during parts of that, which was also perfectly understandable. Slightly less so as how he had handed the love-making baton to Sergeant Beetroot at one stage. Bill Maynard was a wonderful actor, God bless him, but not the sort of man who would have ever figured in too many female fantasies. Then there was the question of who Barney even was. Humphrey had already placed him in the difficult position, by the time they'd got back to her cabin, of being Humphrey Lovewell. But he would never have felt the need to do that if he'd known that Barney Adams was really Barney Lovewell, because that crackpot scheme had only ever occurred to her ex-husband in an attempt to get a hug that was worthy of the name from Mr Lovewell QC. Had Humphrey known in advance who Barney was, he would have got all the familial hugs he needed from Barney himself. Whichever of these people he chose to identify as, while engaged in the serious business of reverse-engineering the amazing little boy they'd already been given, she knew it was him she needed to be with. How to tidy up the last thoughts she might ever get to share with her wonderful ex-husband, though, that was the thing. What did you want to check, sweetheart? Well, I'm going to be thinking about you a lot. I just want to know how you want me to think of you. As a half-decent bloke, I suppose, who tried to do his best and who loved you unconditionally. No, no, I know all that. Oh, and that's the internal stuff I would have taken for granted anyway. But not in quite the same way she had done previously. Now, I'm talking about physically. There was a long pause. I suppose a few extra inches wouldn't hurt, where it never actually mattered very much for us. I'm not going to be thinking about you like that, am I? 
Although, if the frantic 15 minutes never happened, what would that make the very last romantic encounter they'd ever experienced? The one she could reach for in the future when considering how lucky she was to have found Barney, thanks to the efforts of her tour guide over there. There'd been an evening in Brentwood after their divorce. Had there? There'd been a dinner and a vineyard's worth of red wine. Humphrey had been up for something romantic to happen, but had sensibly removed himself from the scene before it had. Prior to that, their last attempt at lovemaking would have been out on the moors, when she deviously engineered it so they'd be stuck out there all night, with only each other for comfort. Looking back at it now, it was the make-or-break night of their marriage. Had she allowed him to wrap her up in his arms and make her feel protected, he may very well have decided to make love to her there and then of his own volition anyway. Even if he hadn't, the power of a cuddle was inestimable. Their marriage might have staggered on, like a valiant infantry soldier, determined to complete his mission, but only carrying on in the right general direction because of momentum and grim determination, and with no awareness yet that he'd been hit by a hail of mortally wounding bullets, which would make the mission doomed to failure regardless of anything the soldier, his regiment, or the entire might of the British Army could do. She could go back even further than that and put the requisite amount of petrol into the thing when trusted to do so by her husband, thus eliminating the ensuing debacle from the possibilities available for them to choose from. They could still have pretended to break down out there on those moors. For all she knew, that was precisely the kind of scenario he had planned for them to indulge in all along, with the added bonus of her being somehow to blame for them running out of petrol, even though they hadn't, and for her to receive such punishment for that crime as he thought appropriate. She would never have played along with that, which was the totally frustrating thing, but it didn't really matter. Their marriage had already run its course by then. There was only one thing she would change about it. Would you do me a favour, do you think? Anything, darling. Within reason. There was no need to keep adding that caveat. Christ, she had Barney waiting for her around there somewhere, a willing participant in all forms of romantic choreography. Humphrey was more than safe. Well, at some point, when you get off this ship and get back to Brentwood, would you please just take a spray and a cloth and go outside and clean that bloody steering wheel thoroughly? There was no need to explain how worried she was for him, should his naked bum print still find its way onto the nation's database. There was so much scope for having it planted at the scene of myriad crimes, purely to get a quick conviction. And while the Humphrey on that boat had not yet fallen foul of the law, that aspect of his existence did look to have been completely unavoidable. If only he hadn't been so determined to never do a damn thing he was supposed to. Will do. Is that all? She never had got around to getting an answer to her original question, so no, that wasn't quite all. It wouldn't be quite all, even then. How would you want Louise to see you? Another long pause. Pardon? God, he was hard work. Well, fat or thin or modelling the women's wear or what? He looked down into the waves. I really don't see what difference it makes. Not now. Just answer the bloody question. He tried, bless him. But perhaps in so doing, he was overtaken in his deliberations by the awareness of the genuine depth of his feelings for Mrs. Louise Lovewell. How do you think she would like to remember me? Anthea squeezed him towards her, catching a whiff of Chanel No. 5 as she did so. That would require a bit of thought, that would. I'll come up with something, darling, I promise. 
He squeezed her towards him. Anthea resisted the temptation to take control of the move and allowed him to keep the upper hand. That was sufficiently novel an outcome for them both to have remembered that as being the earth-shattering event of that whole scenario, without the additional requirement for any debauchery at all. Why were you asking about Louise anyway? Well, because she's lovely, and because she thinks the world of you, Humphrey. You mean the world to her. He sighed heavily. Oh, I'll be there if she needs me. To the best of my ability, I will be anyway. But she doesn't need me to complicate her life, per se. Why don't you ask her? The tight embrace between the pair of them loosened immediately. I beg your pardon? Anthea moved her head towards his, then put her mouth to his ear. Come off it, H. You and I both know that she's the other side of these deck chairs, hanging around in the hope of getting an eyeful. In this great reset of what had actually taken place on this side of those deck chairs, Louise would have been left immensely disappointed. But that was just perfect. However, Humphrey was genuinely terrified. When Anthea woke up, in the first few seconds before the entire dream escaped her forever, she might ponder whether his fear was related to Louise being so close, Louise being a shameless voyeur, or Anthea making the sort of demands on him which would make the spectacle worthy of someone like Louise spying upon it. She could even have confirmed it with him there and then, if he hadn't flung himself straight over the railings, presumably because of his fear that the actual answer was the third of those hastily assembled options. She was being dragged away from the scene entirely now, not through a door or even falling into that randomly appearing quagmire. She was just gone. The next clear thought she had was an awareness that she'd opened her eyes while lying in bed and that there was some sort of commotion going on somewhere. Barney was still sleeping, looking blissfully happy. It took Anthea a few seconds while she stumbled out of bed intent on finding out who had woken her up and then giving them a generous piece of her mind to remember why he would have looked so contented. There was something about Humphrey and about Barney being his brother that was very relevant indeed to the dream she just had. Typically, though, she could remember absolutely nothing about the sorting thing. They were brothers, though. That was no dream. What was the effing time? 5.15. Ah, uh, not that unreasonable an hour to be knocked up at, then. But that wasn't the point. She was going to make sure whoever was talking loudly outside her basement bedroom, quite possibly up on her front steps now, damn well knew that as well. Chapter 24 Louise opened her eyes and for a moment had no awareness at all of where she was, either geographically or even on the timeline between 1986 and 2019. The sight of her faithful old bear in the morning light, resplendent in the uniform of the dragon-slaying trade he'd taken up since they'd last known one another, instantly jolted her back to the Monday of the 8th of July, 2019. Her 49th birthday. Her, in her beloved Humphrey's old bedroom, because she had shunned the opportunity to take her usual place in her usual bed beside her husband, who was acting unusually in the extreme. She barely even had time to run through all that lot, before the reason she'd been woken so suddenly became apparent. Mr Lovewell QC's mobile phone was ringing. That would have to mean there had been some form of restoration of the communication networks just before she woke up, which had allowed that phone to contact, or be contacted by, someone with a message to convey. In addition, 
That was likely to be the signal that Mr Lovewell QC was receiving the instructions for his forthcoming broadcast. She would have to get up now then in any case, after she'd investigated who was on the other end of this phone. The little clock in the corner told her the time was 5.15, and the writing in the middle of it told her the call which had woken her up was a voicemail, ringing her back with news of an original call which must have come in at some time before the shutdown in communications back in Scarborough. There would have been no real urgency with which to answer the call, had she not also noticed that the little battery symbol in the other corner was now showing the phone as running off the absolute dregs of its power. With no charger to hand, she would just have to hear the message now, when she was yet to prepare herself fully for the range of things she might be expected to hear. Mr Lovewell QC's phone had received one message, allegedly left that morning, at one minute past midnight at a time when she and her alleged husband were heading south in their two separate vehicles, at a time when all the communication networks were supposed to have been shut down, at a time when Humphrey was appearing to her in her passenger seat courtesy of her overactive imagination, and at a time when William Woolworth, according to the story that had somehow become official, though Louise knew not how, was somewhere between an ambulance, a pathologist's table, and a cold storage unit. Good morning, Louise. How was it possible then for him to have been leaving a message for her at one minute past midnight? Unless it was something pre-recorded and he'd have one of his people forward it on to her. I hope you like the gift. Good grief. It was as if he was there in that room speaking to her. Oh, don't say he intended to haunt her. Her alleged husband deserved more respect from his former pupil than for him to brazenly move into his home and start rattling his chains. Wait, though. Mr. Walworth was a gentleman. He would have way more class than to do that to his former pupil master. To the man everyone else but her would assume was the same version of his pupil master anyway. Whatever it may look like, I have not forgotten my promises to you. So much adrenaline flooded her body that she felt more alive than she could ever remember. Not quite as alive as Walworth would have felt, though. He wasn't dead. And if he wasn't dead, then Humphrey could never have killed him. It's going to take me, and some very good friends of mine, a little bit of time before I can keep my promises. But I will. In the meantime, don't give up hope. And don't believe everything you see. Oh, and as ever, stay positive. She certainly could now. Happy birthday, Louise. With impeccable timing, from the point of view of that message at least, the phone chose to die completely, straight after he'd uttered that line. It was bad timing for anyone who might have wanted to play Warworth's message over and over again, though. She considered the risk of sneaking out to their Scarborough suitcases and trying to find the phone charger without alerting her husband to her presence, but she was going to have to do that momentarily anyway. She therefore wouldn't have the luxury of spending a lazy Monday morning in Humphrey's bed, listening to the voice of the man who had promised 33 years ago that he would personally make all of her dreams become reality. She drew her diminutive knight in fabric armour to her chest, wishing for just a few precious moments to have a deep and meaningful conversation with him again, after all these years. He didn't seem to bear her a grudge for her decision to sling him in the 1986 dustbin. Walworth had probably had a bit of a word with him the other day and smoothed things over for her. Mr Walworth was someone she trusted implicitly. Nobody else but him could have convinced her to follow his instructions, even at the expense of Mikey's immediate career satisfaction and professional happiness. 
although she would have liked to have thought that being married to her had brought him contentment and joy of its own. Before he became a completely different person, that was. Lying on Humphrey's bed, hugging her night in fabric armour, and of a mind to think carefully but quickly about the precise nature of the dreams she wanted to come true, there was only ever going to be one. Her best friend's happiness. However such a thing might come about. Poor Humphrey. He just never seemed to get any luck of his own at all. For instance, now, when, depending upon what Michael Lovewell QC was given to read in a few minutes, the whole nation would think of him as Walworth's cold-blooded killer. They'd want the poor sweetheart locked up forever, with the key thrown away, while Walworth, the previous evening's villain of the piece, would be viewed more sympathetically than him. Fair enough, Humphrey was a convicted bumfonder, but Walworth had been found guilty, albeit in a somewhat eccentric courtroom location, of standing by and doing nothing while others got away with a whole lot worse. To be near Humphrey Lovewell now would have made everything better, although she had no idea why, and may simply have been reading silently through the transcript of the words which had just come straight out of her arse. To know that man loved her would have given her the strength to deal with whoever was going to be waiting for her down in that study of her alleged husband's. Her heart ached for Humphrey so very much that the pain was indescribable. But it wasn't the worst pain she could ever envisage. Never mind childbirth, toothache and anything that had been done to her as a youngster. The worst agony she could imagine would be to have him, truly have him, and then lose him. But there was a blessing in there somewhere, because she couldn't have him, thanks directly and indirectly to his father, or at least to the man who was purporting to be him. <laughs>